This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have a Bible with you or the Alliance Bible Church app, a little commercial there, um, go ahead and uh, open that up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Also, uh, in your bulletin this morning, you'll find uh, a Connect card in there. We want to invite you, if you have a question or an interest or a prayer request, or especially if you're new here, invite you to uh, fill that out. You can drop that in the offering plate as it comes by at the end of the service. Now enter into this story with me. This story found in a book, penned with a purpose, a stated purpose, a purpose that appeals to every skeptic and kid who's ever read it, a purpose that every seeker and saint, when they come across it, wonder at it, a purpose that isn't hidden, isn't lurking, but it's being publicly proclaimed and asked on every page of this ancient biography. A purpose that says that these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See that word Christ there, uh, it hadn't yet become a last name. No, it, it meant something. It meant everything, in fact, to a Jewish man or a Jewish woman. They thought about it. They talked about it. They read about it. They dreamt about it. They prized this. Start picturing this with me, imagining this with me. See, there had been other men who had come before, and they had claimed to be the Christ, the long-awaited-for Messiah, but they never delivered on their promise. They only ever died. And eventually, after their death, things would eventually get back to normal. It had always been that way. Until that day, until that special Sabbath day recorded here in John 5. See, there had been talk, there had been murmurs, there had been whispers of a new man claiming to be the Christ. But, but it was said that there was more than that, that, that this man could do things that normal people couldn't do, that he had power over disease. Most figured that this was just a legend, or more likely, a lie. Most figured that this couldn't be the Messiah, but just another troublemaker. But that Sabbath day, no one knew that the troublemaker had entered Jerusalem. It all happened right over there near the temple by the Sheep's Gate. There was a pool there that was called Bethesda. It was a two-part pool. It had uh, colonnades uh, all around it, five of them. These were roofed porches where crowds of people would gather in shade and, and hiding from the sweltering heat of the sun. These crowds would come day after day because this pool, this was no ordinary pool. This was a pool of legend, of mystery. It was said of this pool that occasionally an angel from heaven would swoop down and he would swirl the waters. And then the first one in the waters after that would be healed. 
This meant a, a slight disturbance, a slight wave in the wrong direction could cause a mad dash of people running for the water, leaving the slower ones in the dust. And so there on the porches were littered the sick of the city, all crowding around, hoping, watching, waiting, ready to move. One man who was there, he really believed. He had done something no one was ever quite sure exactly what it was, but he had ended up as an invalid as a result. He was paralyzed from the waist down. He lived off of the charity and begging. His hands were beyond callous. They were like leather from having to crawl his way through the dirt and rocks of the streets of Jerusalem as he daily drug himself around. As an invalid, he had no control over his bowels or his bladder. He looked disgusting. He smelled disgusting. People would give his spot on the porch a wide berth. And there, that was his spot. For 38 years, he laid there. For 38 years, his eyes were riveted on the water, looking for that legendary signal. For 38 years, he had tried, and he had lost the race for 38 years, but he didn't give up. Again and again, he would try, and again and again, he would fail to be healed. Until that one Sabbath day, when the man, the troublemaker, came up to him. He was used to people staring at him, of course, but this man, he asked a question. He said, do you want to be healed? <laughs> that man was taken aback. Do I want to be healed? Look at me. Of course I want to be healed. It's why I'm here at the pool. It's everything to me. But an opportunity like this, it didn't present itself every day. No, this man was smart, and so he bit his tongue, and instead he said, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. He was hoping that the stranger had caught his drift, that maybe he would lend a hand. Maybe with a little bit of help, he could finally be first. He could finally be healed. But the question, see, it had accomplished its purpose because the man was no longer watching the water. He was looking at the troublemaker. And that's when he said it. The two greatest words the man had ever heard See, he was used to hearing commands, commands like shut up, commands like hurry up, but never, never, ever get up. Get up. The sweetest words the man had ever heard in his life as the man said, get up and pick up your bed and walk. It was in that moment, feeling began to rush into his legs, strength began to happen, movement began to occur. He began to place a leathered hand on the ground and he began to rise. Well, that didn't just happen every day. In fact, that never happened. A commotion began, people began to realize, jaws began to drop, astonishment could be heard. The man was healed, but he wasn't in the pool. They looked for the one who had done it, but he was gone. He had somehow melted away into the crowds. He was gone. Well, well, 
could they believe what they were seeing. There, the invalid man walked. He began to roll up his bed mat, put it under his arm, and make his way to the temple. See, that was procedure, a genuine healing. Healing had to be uh, confirmed by the priest. Never had the trip to the temple ever taken so little time. The temple always being uphill, the man always being unclean, had never gotten very religious. But there he was. He was in the temple, beaming ear to ear, joy dripping from every porous. But then something was wrong. Men started to yell at him. They said, stop, stop. They yelled, what are you doing? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. As a Jew, how had he forgotten about this? In his joy of the miraculous healing, he, he hadn't thought about it being the Sabbath. Uh, he tried to explain things to smooth them over. He said, uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. But they pressed. Who? Who told you to do that? They wanted to know. Well, as the man thought about it, he wanted to know too. But he didn't know who had healed him. He didn't know who had said to him, get up and walk. He didn't know who the man was. How could he answer them? He didn't have an answer. All he could say was the truth. But he noticed that thankfully, they seemed more upset at the healer, at this troublemaker, than they were at him. And so they let him off with a warning this time. And then just as the former invalid was headed out the temple mound near the nearest gate, the man found him. And he said, see then, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Worse? What could be worse than 38 years as a paraplegic beggar? He didn't know, but he didn't want to find out either. Well, he thought to himself before he left, he thought, well, I'll get those religious leaders, though, off my back. He, he went back to them, he found them, and he told them it was the man Jesus who had healed him. Well, now they knew it. They, they saw the pieces coming together. They had heard the rumors too, but now they knew this was no Messiah, no Savior, no leader that they were looking for. He couldn't possibly be their hope because no Messiah, no Christ would ever have broken the Sabbath, and he would definitely not have told others to break it too. He had told that beggar to pick up his bed and walk. That was against the rules. The Mishnah, it had 39 sacred rules that the teachers had decided on, and this broke one. No true Messiah would ever do that. This guy was a fake, a fraud, and they were going to put a stop to it. They tracked him down at the gate, and when they found him, they lit into him. They persecuted him, or as the Greeks like to call it in their courts, they prosecuted him. They weren't going to let this guy get away with it. After all, they had him dead to rights for breaking the Sabbath and inciting others to do so too. They were going to ruin this false Messiah and everyone was going to know it. They'd know he was a fake and that they were the protectors of the people. They would know that they had been watching out for them. And so with anger written on every line of their face, disgust dripping with every tone of their words, they made their charge. 
Who do you think you are to break the Sabbath? And he answered them. One simple line. One line. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working too. They looked at each other, each of them pausing, slowly registering the words that they were hearing. They knew what this reference meant. This wasn't just a troublemaker. This wasn't just a Sabbath breaker. This was a blasphemer. For he was claiming that God was his father and that he was equal with God. This meant death. No one said that and got away with it. No one. Everyone knew that. And everyone would approve of the fact that this man had to go. If anything, they would be heroes for doing the nation a favor. As we step back out of this amazing story, we look at the text that follows. We see that what follows here is a case. A case that Jesus makes for a claim that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. He will go on from this claim here, and he'll lay out four evidences for his claim. He'll explain that, well, number one, that there's John. John, who had already shown up in, the, in this book, that, that John the baptizer had said that Jesus was the Messiah. For us today, we should note that, that it was people in that day and time, not somebody just later on, but people in that day and time that, was, that were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't an idea that was made up later. But Jesus goes on. He says, I'm not going to rest my testimony on John. He moves on to evidence number two. He says, there's the miracles. There's the story right here, right, of, of the lame man walking. And there were countless other reports of Jesus' healings. Now, in the 21st century, we might struggle a little bit as modern people with the idea of miracles. But on the other hand, wouldn't we expect that if the Son of God actually showed up, that the miraculous would happen? Just a thought. But again, Jesus moves on. He says, number three here, he says, the source of the miracles. No mere human could simply say to a, a paraplegic man, get up, and he would be healed, right? We were all clear on that one. Jesus is claiming, though, that God is assisting in these miracles to give witness that Jesus is his son. Now, I thought about that piece of evidence, and I thought, you know, is that kind of cheesy to say? I mean, isn't that what every one of these people claiming to be the Christ, wouldn't they, of course, have said that? Wouldn't they had to have claimed that? But then as I thought about it some more, I thought, you know, if I was being accused of impersonating John Vallier, son of Dan Vallier, wouldn't the, the first person I would want to come to my defense be my dad? Because wouldn't he, after all, be the greatest authority on who his son was? Maybe second to my mom, you know, somewhere around in there. Right? The same is true here. Now, number four, he says, Scripture. Specifically, Jesus cites Moses' own words that these Jews in the story, that they knew by heart but didn't understand or accept. That they had all these words and they had all pointed to Jesus. Jesus. 
If you've been here over the last year, you've heard us explain how the Old Testament pointed to the gospel and to Jesus as the Christ. And we'll be continuing that journey in the fall. I invite you to stay tuned with it. But we'll end here with this very curious turn of events where he leaves us taken aback. And if you're a skeptic in here this morning, hear me out before you tune me out here. But he says in verse 40, he says, I do not receive glory, or that is, approval from people. But I know that you do not love God, have the love of God within you. Why? Because I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me or accept me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory or approval from one another and do not seek the approval that comes from the only God? See, Jesus is looking at all of this. He's looking back through all of chapter 5 here. And he's saying that they just saw the lame man walking. They just heard his claim. They just heard his evidences. And they have this stubborn resistance. And he's saying, you're kidding me. You're more biased than a politician. This isn't about an honest hearing. Why? Because each and every one of them was more concerned about the approval of people than they were the truth, let alone the approval of God. Jesus here then, he shows any one of us something, something deeply important about our faith, especially as we consider the claims of Christ. He says here then that, that fear of people's disapproval leads to the loss of God's approval. Fear of people's disapproval leads to the loss of God's approval. If we are so scared of other people's disapproval to the point that it influences our actions, then we are no longer seeking the approval of God, but the approval of someone else. See, friends, whether you're a skeptic or a saint, God's not afraid of questions or doubts. He's not above explaining his claims or giving logical evidence for that. He's done that throughout Scripture. This isn't the only spot. But to look at the evidence without risking the approval of others inevitably leads to disbelief, even in the life of a Christian. A.W. Tozer spoke of these verses saying, if I understand this correctly, Christ taught here the alarming doctrine that the desire for honor among men made belief impossible. Is this sin at the root of religious unbelief? Could it be that those intellectual difficulties which men blame for their inability to believe are but smoke screens to conceal the real cause that lies behind them? Was it this greedy desire for honor from man that made men into Pharisees Pharisees and the deicides, killers of God. Is this the secret back of religious self-righteousness and empty worship? I believe it may be. What's the real cause for your struggle with faith? Could it be, skeptic or saint, fear? Fear of what others would think if you ask 
those questions? If you admitted where you're at, what you really believe, where you began to explore the claims of Christ, could it be? Maybe you've noticed uh, the power of disapproval in, in our world. We can see this in every facet of life. Uh, just yesterday, uh, it was earlier in the morning, I was down here in Cedarburg running an errand, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to stop by that, that French bakery, whose name I can't pronounce, um, and pick up a treat for my boys on the way back. Uh, so anyways, I get there, though, and I, I look down, and I realize because it had been early, I had decided that it was okay to break that, uh, that, uh, that fashion rule about socks and flip-flops, because I'm not 45 yet, and uh, <laughs> oh, there's some pain in the room over that one. <laughs> I broke the rule. <laughs> we noticed, right? We noticed those little cultural faux pas, those little things, but it's not just in the small things. Just earlier this week, news hit about the famous uh, British snowboarder, Ellie Sutter, who had gained lots of approval, but out of fear of future, yet future disapproval of losing it, she took her own life. She was 18. Fear of other people's approval is a powerful force, and if allowed, it can keep us from seeking God's approval for fear of others' disapproval. If you want to explore the claims of Jesus, if you want to be a follower of his, you have to be willing to risk the affection and approval of others. Otherwise, it is a pointless endeavor. If we are unwilling also as followers of Christ to uh, later on in life as we find ourselves living as a Christian, that we find ourselves unwilling to part with the comforts of life or the approval of our coworkers or our friends, or even our family, to continue to seek the approval of God, then we will end up with a chronically ill faith, an empty worship, and a confused mind. We must be willing to risk it all for the sake of Christ's approval. Billy Graham once shared a letter to this effect, a letter that uh, was from a, a young communist, and so it's in some ways a, 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 by way of opposite here, but a letter that perfectly displays this, a letter that he wrote to his fiance as a breakup letter. He wrote, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot, hung, lynched, tarred, feathered, jailed, slandered, ridiculed, and fired from our jobs. And in every other way, we are made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or to live in decent homes and have new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. We live, our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. 
We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into the great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime. I dream of it at night. Its hold grows on me, not lessens as time grows on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas. And if necessary, I'm ready to go before the firing squad. Commitment. Willing to risk the disapproval of everybody else. The commitment of seeking the approval of only one is powerful. Oh, that we, as followers of Jesus, would awaken to the freedom and the joy that is ours if we, by faith, would challenge the deep desire of others' approval in our hearts with the commitment to seek the approval that only comes from God. This morning, I want to leave us with one question. One question. I want to invite you to dialogue with someone about this week as a starting point on this journey. Grab a cup of coffee with someone you know. I want you to ask this question. Whose approval do I crave? Whose approval do I really crave? Because friends, we must fix our eyes on another source of approval, one that lasts. We must put aside the fear of others' disapproval and start taking note of what we crave so that we can be intentional about putting our desire for Jesus' approval above all else that we would become willing to risk the embarrassment of friends to pursue the approval of God. And if we do that, if we do that, then we will experience the joy and the peace and the contentment that comes from pursuing the approval of an audience of one. And that one is Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so prone <laughs> to wonder. We are prone to desire the approval of everybody else except for you. We are so prone to seek and pursue something other Lord, would you find our hearts? Would you show us where we crave, what we deeply desire, 
through it, prune us. Make us willing to put up with the embarrassment, to put up with the disapproval of everybody else except for you. May you give that singularityness, uh, that singularness to, to our hearts to desire your approval, your words of well done, good and faithful servant above all others. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.